turn with me again to Genesis. Genesis, and this week we are in Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44. And if you may, please stand as I read God's word out loud to you. Genesis chapter 44. And we'll be reading the entire chapter, beginning in verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And he overtook them, and he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. And behold, we are my Lord's servants both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do good. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant, but as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a brother, a younger brother, a child of his old age. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to my servant, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. 
Then you said to your servant, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when my father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety, that is, surety, for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Please be seated. So for those of you who were with us last week, you recalled we were in chapter 43. And at the start of chapter 43, Joseph was waiting, in a sense, for Judah and his brothers to come back with Benjamin. But Jacob would obviously not relent in letting Benjamin go. And it wasn't until Judah told his father, I myself will be surety for him, it was at that point that Jacob finally relented. And you remembered we had covered that the word surety means guarantor or co-signer. And it basically has the idea that you would serve as a guarantee for a financial obligation or some sort of obligation if the original responsible party was not able to fulfill it. And you remember that Jacob, who in 43 was referred to as Israel, he gave the short speech and he said, El Shaddai, God Almighty, uh, is, is in this. And he said at the end that if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And what he meant by that was he was resigning to El Shaddai, God Almighty, that whatever you will, it is okay, it is right with me. And we notice that in the rest of chapter 43 that Joseph's brothers were recipients of Joseph's kindness, right? That led up to the feast and they were all feasting. Simeon, their brother, was unharmed and released and there was celebration and at, I think, the last verse of chapter 43, it read that they, that is all the brothers, drank and were merry with him and I think Chris Nielsen pointed out that 
that verb where Mary has almost a literal meaning of being intoxicated, that they were so uh, involved in the feast that they were, in a sense, intoxicated in their celebration. But even though there was celebration, there was something that was still lacking. There was still no restoration. There had been no repentance, no forgiveness. The brother's guilt still remained. And so now we come to chapter 44, and we'll title this chapter, The Lion of Judah. And as usual, we'll be dividing the chapter into four sections. The first section, the brother's test in verse 1 to 5. Then the brother's change in verse 6 to 13. Thirdly, the brother's guilt in verse 14 to 17. And then finally, Judah is surety in verses 18 to 34. Now, it's interesting to note that in, in chapter 44, what we've read, all these verses, in a sense, all these events take place in less than a day, right? So the, the brothers had, the, 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 everyone enjoyed their feast, and early the next morning, chapter 44 starts, and all of these events take place in a moment of just a few hours. And we recall back in 42 that when Joseph's brothers first came to Egypt that Joseph feigned and himself and disguised himself as a, sir, as a stranger. And he, the reason why he did that was it was almost like he was playing a game. There was something else that he had in mind. And this comes to fruition now here in chapter 44. And part of his masterful plan was it required Benjamin to have arrived in Egypt. And so what was this plan? Well, the plan is this, that Joseph is about to give his brothers one final test, a test to see if the brothers had truly changed and were ready to repent and to ask for forgiveness. And so what was this plan we see at the start of this passage that he tells, that is Joseph, he tells the, his, his steward to, to put food into the sack, but to plant his cup, his silver cup, into the sack of Benjamin. The question is like, what is the plan here? Well, the test is, in a sense, to frame Benjamin of taking this cup and then to seize Benjamin and see the response of the brothers. And so that's exactly what happens. Early in the morning, the brothers get sent away. They have all their food. They have the money that was actually also returned and the silver cup. And then the brothers leave. And in a short period of time, the steward goes out to the brothers and stops them and accuses them by saying in verse 4, why have you repaid evil for good? And this question is in stark contrast to what Joseph later says in Genesis 50, 20. You remember Gen Joseph saying that, you know, you brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Here Joseph is saying to his brothers through the steward, why have you repaid good with evil? Now, we should pause to at least think, what makes this, this silver cup so special. The word cup, it's not a standard cup like what you would think like of when 
you were to ask for a cup of water or a drinking cup. This cup has more significance than that. The, the Hebrew word for cup can be translated cup, but it could also be translated bowl or goblet. And we understand here from the text, from the narrative, that this is a specific goblet, large goblet or bowl, specifically for divination. We may think that perhaps Joseph is practicing divination, but I don't think that's the case. In the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26, and Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, the, the, the law of Israel, God strictly prohibits the act of divination. That is to use you know, some other means for prophecy or for foretelling and not approaching God, almighty God. I don't think Joseph is actually a regular practicer of divination, but part of his disguise, his disguise is to have that front to make this silver goblet, the silver cup, that much more valuable. And so what would happen in ancient times is that uh, a lot of times there would be oil that's first poured into the cup and then you pour water or the other way around and so the diviner would look at the patterns of the water and the oil and through looking at those patterns to be able to, in a sense, foretell either the future or to have something revealed to them that was unseen. So all to say that this silver cup was something that was special, not just because it was made of silver, but because it was used specifically for this type of practice, which makes this cup unique in a sense, irreplaceable. So the steward is basically telling the, the, the brothers that Joseph's cup of divination is missing and one of you have taken it and whoever is found, in a sense, is implied to be severely punished. And so what is the response of the brothers? Well, we see that in the second uh, section, beginning in verse six, they, quick, they quickly plead innocence, right? Because none of the brothers, in fact, took the cup. And in fact, they were very confident of their innocence. So if you look even in verse 7 of chapter 44, the, the brothers say, Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. This word that's translated Far be it. It's a very strong term. It is commonly used to precede an oath that you would make before God. In the book of Joshua, at the end of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, the people of Israel said, Far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. In fact, when Abraham, back in chapter 18, when he knew or was informed by God that God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember that Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham actually told God that you, the God that I know, if there are 50 people who are still righteous and still following you, you would not judge the righteous with the wicked. And Abraham said to God, far be it 
from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to dead with the wicked. This word, far be it, is used the second time here by the brothers and a third and final time later in verse 17 by Joseph. So Joseph's brothers are saying, we are innocent. Far be it that we would do such a thing. And in fact, they are so confident, they are willing to open up all their sacks and be searched, and they would even pronounce a curse of a death penalty should someone be found guilty. Now, this would seem rather rash, right? I mean, remember their first trip when they got back, all their money had been returned to them unbeknownst to them. So even if they were innocent, they should have at least thought a bit before making such a wrath oath, but they were so confident that they would be, in a sense, uh, found innocent once the search was made, that they would make this rash promise, this rash condemnation upon the guilty. And so Joseph's Stuart, he accepts that offer, uh, and he clarifies by saying, whatever you've pronounced, I'm in agreement with, but all I want is the guilty one. The guilty one will be my servant. Everyone else can be set free. And so in dramatic fashion, just as you remembered in the last chapter when the brothers were seated from eldest to youngest, the steward starts with the oldest. Reuben, open up your sack. Simeon, Levi, Judah. One by one, they open up their sack, no silver cup, and they were probably feeling that much more confident until Benjamin. And they open up the sack, and sure enough, the silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack. An interesting look at what the brother's response was. Look down at verse 13. The narrator writes in verse 13, then they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. What in the economy of words, they tore their clothes. The action of tearing one's clothes in the Old Testament, including this time, it, it was an action that primarily showed emotion. The main action of tearing one's clothes is to show emotion. There is a sense of mourning. There is sometimes even a sense of repentance. But the main thing that's displayed when a person tears their clothes is a, show, a, a display of profound emotion. When Reuben came back and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, in Genesis chapter 37, you remember that Reuben's original plan was to tell his brothers, put him in the pit, and I'm going to come back later to rescue Joseph and bring Joseph back to our father Jacob. When Reuben found, came back and saw that the pit was empty, what did he do? He tore his clothes. When the brothers brought the ornate robe 
back to their father with the goat blood to Jacob. And Jacob saw that. What was his first response? He tore his clothes. The general Joshua, when he had his first defeat at Ai in Joshua chapter 7, what did Joshua do? He tore his clothes. King David, when he learned that King Saul had died, instead of celebrating, because King Saul was trying to take his life, to everyone's surprise, his action was he tore his clothes. And the brothers here, when they see the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, their action as described by the narrator, they tore their clothes. What a stark contrast this is from Genesis chapter 37. You remembered when the brothers did throw Joseph into the pit. I told you that the next thing they did was they ate lunch and felt like nothing had happened. One of the first things that happens when you, your emotions aren't right, when something's not right, you generally lose your appetite. And so the brothers, they had a full appetite when they put Joseph in the pit. Now they see the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. They know what the implications are, and they tore their clothes. These brothers have changed, at least somewhat. And the rest of the verse in verse 13, it reads, Every man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. It wasn't like they said, well, all right, this is you know, kind of a bad situation. Uh, there's nothing else we can do. We'll go home and back to dad and maybe come up with a new game plan. They quickly loaded their donkey. Everyone goes back. They don't even send a messenger back to dad. All of them go back to Egypt. And this happens in a short period of time. Because now if we look in verse 14, the third section, we see now the brother's guilt. So in verse 14, Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. And this again highlights now that Judah is now the leader of the brothers. Judah and his brothers come into Joseph's house. Joseph is still there. Not much time has elapsed. It wasn't like he went to, the, the, to work back into the palace or wherever he goes to. So, so Joseph is still back into the, in his house. And so Judah and his brothers, they arrive and the first thing that they do now is they, again, they fall down, in a sense, to the feet of Joseph. But unlike the first two times, they are not falling down at the feet of Joseph in honor or, in a sense, even reverence or worship. This is a falling down to the ground in utter desperation. Because what they're about to do is to make a cry for clemency to Joseph. So they fall down before the ground in front of Joseph out of desperation. And now Joseph reverts back to his harsh, rough tone. The first visit, he was harsh, he was rough. Yet in 40, chapter 43, we saw his kindness. No harsh word was uttered, at least that was recorded in chapter 43. But now, chapter 44, verse 15, 
he again reverts to his harsh tone. And what does he say in verse 15? He says, what deed is this that you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And notice what Judah says. So Judah now is the leader. He is the spokesperson. And he speaks. Look what he first says in verse 16. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? The, the verbal form that's used here, it's an imperfect form, and it has a sense of potential, of possibility, in a sense almost of ability. So a lot of other English translations would translate what Judah says is not just what shall we say, but what can we say? What can I say to you? What can I speak? What can I say that, in a sense, would defend me from my guilt? I cannot prove my innocence. The circumstantial evidence is mounting and overwhelming. What shall, what can I say? And Judah continues, how can we clear ourselves God has found out the guilt of your servants. Let's stop right there. What is Judah saying? Judah just said that God has found out our guilt, the guilt of your servants. But I don't think Judah is admitting the guilt of stealing the silver cup. They were actually innocent of, of that crime. None of the brothers, obviously not Benjamin, not Judah, none of the brothers had taken the silver cup. The silver cup was planted into Benjamin's sack by Joseph Stewart, and the Stewart knew it, and Joseph knew it. I don't think that Judah here is pretending that he is guilty to receive a, a less strict judgment. What Judah is saying is that he can't clear himself in a sense, because God has found out the guilt of us, our servants. And I think the only guilt, the biggest guilt they could be alluding to is what they did to Joseph. You remember back in 42, Genesis 42, when it seemed like bad things were happening to them, that the brothers were gripped with fear that this was the hand of God that what was about to happen to them was because of the hand of God judging the brothers because of what they had done to Joseph. You remember they were even reciting the facial expression and the emotion of Joseph when he was being taken away to Egypt. There was a brief interlude of kindness, but now here Judah is in a sense admitting publicly that the brothers are in fact guilty, that God has found out the guilt. And what is Judah's proposal? Well, in verse 17, 16 and 17, he continues. He says, Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. So what Judah is saying is that God has found out our guilt and we are ready to accept the consequences. All of us, not just Benjamin, all of us, we will all be your indentured servants. But notice Joseph's response. 
He says, far be it from me that I should do so. And again, it's, I think it's interesting that he would use the same Hebrew word that's translated, far be it. So here's the test. Joseph is adamant in what he is about to say. Far be it from me that I should do so. In a sense, I'm not going to judge and condemn the innocent with the guilty. Just as Abraham said to God, you are not going to judge the righteous with the wicked in his intercession of Sodom and Gomorrah. So now Jacob is saying, far be it that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup is found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace, shalom, to your father. It's ironic that he would say, not just go back home, but go in shalom to your father. We know that the Hebrew word shalom is always a very special word, both to the ancient Hebrews, even to modern uh, Israel. Uh, it's, it's a word for overall wellness, peace, and well-being. It is impossible for the brothers to have shalom if they go back to their father without Benjamin. They will be completely broken. Their father will be completely broken. But Joseph, in this test, he tells his brothers, far be it, I'm not going to judge the rest of you. You go in peace. Shalom to you as you go back home. Which now leads us to this final section of the chapter. What I think is the climax, verses 18 to 34. And we see here that Judah becomes surety. These next 17 verses, it's the longest speech, the longest monologue in all of Genesis. And one pastor calls this passage the most moving address in all of the word of God. Let's find out why. There are four parts of this speech, this monologue that Judah gives. First, in verse 18, Judah requests a favorable hearing. Look how Judah starts in verse 18. Judah went up and said, Oh, my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. What's Judah saying here? He's saying, hear my case. Don't get mad at what I am about to say. You have the power of the king of Egypt and you have the power to severely punish me. But hear my case. Judah requests this favorable hearing. And then the second thing he does is he recounts their first visit to Egypt. He recounts their first visit to Egypt. Now, for those of you who've been studying with me these last number of weeks, I've pounded at all of you this literary device of recapitulation, right? 
the, 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 the literary device of recapitulation is that in the narrative that some details are recapitulated. They're repeated a second time and on rare occasions a third time. And so when there are details that are recapitulated, you and I should not get bored. <laughs> like, oh, reading it again. <laughs> it's the third time. But it's there for a reason. And this recapitulation of the first visit to Egypt is the recapitulation for the third time. You remember in Genesis chapter 41, the narrator, the author, is giving the account of the first visit, the brother's first visit to Egypt. The second time, the first recapitulation, is when the brothers in chapter 42, they go back to their father and they retell the story of what happened of their first visit in Egypt to their father. And now we see this first visit a third time. And this is what Judah now is recounting to Joseph. And let's just quickly highlight what is Judah emphasizing here in this third recitation of their first visit. So basically there's five things. One, there is a father, an old man. Two, there is this one youngest son who is beloved by the father. Third, the youngest son had one brother, presumed dead, and so therefore the one remaining son left is the one son left remaining to their mother and father. Fourth, the prime minister was informed of all of this, uh, and was, in a sense, informed that this youngest son could not leave the father and that if he leaves, that is Benjamin, his father would die. And finally, even so, the prime minister stipulates that unless this youngest son comes to Egypt, the brothers could not face the prime minister face to face again. So those are the main details of this third description of their first visit. So Judah asks for a favorable reports, uh, is requesting a favorable hearing. He recounts their first visit. And then thirdly, the third part of this monologue, this speech, Judah reports his father's distress. Judah reports his father's distress. When you look at the speech, if you read this with me, it seems that the main character of Judah's speech is the father, Judah's father, Benjamin's father. In fact, if you just literally count the number of references to Jacob, I counted 15 times in 17 verses. In fact, look with me, verse 19. My Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? Verse 20, we have a father. And at the end of verse 20, his father loves him. If you skip down to verse 22, we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. 
For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, verse 25, and when our father said, verse 27, then your servant, my father, verse 30, therefore I come to your servant, my father, verse 31, your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father. Judah's focus is actually not the welfare of Benjamin. He doesn't reference Benjamin 15 times. He doesn't make reference to himself. He doesn't make reference to the brothers. He doesn't even make much reference to the prime minister. When Judah makes this plea and claims himself as surety, the focus is actually on his father, the welfare of his father. If the boy is not with us, my father will die. So he now reports his father's distress, and then he closes this speech in the final three verses. Judah renders himself as surety. He renders himself as surety. Look back with me in verse 32. Judah says, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. That word pledge of safety is the same word that he had said to his father in chapter 43 that in the New American Standard and King James Version, he is translated as surety. I became surety for the boy to my father. He restates his pledge as the cosigner, as the guarantor, as the promise of surety. And he follows up with that statement, with what he says then in verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. So Judah here, to back up his promise as surety, he pledges to be a substitute for Israel's son, Benjamin. Judah is accepting in a sense, vicarious punishment in place of Benjamin. And by the time he finishes this speech, we'll cover it next time, but you can't help but notice the first verse of chapter 45. What does, what does Joseph do? He completely breaks down. This speech and what Judah just said was too much for even Joseph to bear. You know, God required Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 42. He required all of the firstborn sons of Egypt during the Exodus. And yet, he provided a Passover lamb so that the angel of death could pass over the firstborn sons of Israel. Joseph required Benjamin 
but Judah is now offering himself as Benjamin's substitute. And my question to you is, does Judah remind you of anyone? Because it is from the loins of Judah that comes our Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, in the King James Version, it reads, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. In Revelation chapter 5, uh, it is cried out, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So for all of us here in this room, in a sense, we are just like Jacob's brothers, right? All of us, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in this room, we had carried the heavy weight, the burden, the guilt of our sin. All of us, in a sense, are under God's wrath and condemnation. Abraham's son Isaac was spared in Genesis 22. Jacob's sons are spared. In Genesis 38, Judah was spared. And now here in this chapter, Benjamin will be spared. All the firstborn sons of Israel were spared in Passover. But there was one son who was not spared. This son, his father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is the same son that the Apostle Paul writes, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Think with me for a moment. Israel, Jacob, would have truly been broken had the brothers not returned home without Benjamin. Do you think our Heavenly Father loves his one only son any less? Far be it. Before the creation of the world, he infinitely loved his son more than Jacob would have ever loved Benjamin. And yet he unfolds the story to the Israelite readers, to us, I think partly to show how much more his love for us and him not sparing his own son This is what Christmas is about, isn't it? He did not, God did not spare his only son. Jacob did not die in sorrow to Sheol because our heavenly father took upon himself sorrow. And in the greatest act of love, mercy, it's our heavenly father, he sent his only son to be our substitute, our guarantor, our surety. So as we enter this Christmas week, may we all, all of us in this room, may we worship our Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, 
the infant Jesus, our surety, the Lion of Judah. Let's pray. Father, what can we say? There is nothing we can say. We are all guilty and we deserve condemnation. And one by one, Isaac, Judah, Benjamin, the people of Israel, and now us, that you would spare us by not sparing your son. Father, we pray that you will help us to cherish what you did, what you have done. And we don't even presume, I pray that if there's any in this room that have not yet come to trust and accept you as surety, that even today, that that decision, that entrustment will be done. Father, I thank you again for giving us as a church that we can gather together in your name, and I pray that we will continue to cherish these truths in our hearts this upcoming week through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Amen.